we're going to be talking about the Word of God today, and we're going to be talking about the Bible. We consider that the Word of God. I hope you have as much fun listening to this as I think I'm going to have saying it. I'm not going to be there just yet. Maybe we will. But uh, we're going to open up your Bibles to the book called Second Peter in the New Testament, almost to the very end. We're going to be in chapter 1. We've been there for a couple of weeks now. Talking about this letter written by the great apostle Peter, who was very close to Jesus while Jesus had his, his mission on this earth. Come and display who he was. And Peter was right beside him during those three and a half years. Peter talked a little too much, maybe. But at least he had something to say. And what Peter writes to us, as we've already looked at in 1 Peter, is he told us that, in verse 3 of chapter 1, God's divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. What that means is that God has given us this that pertains to all life and all godliness by glory and virtue. So, whatever it is in our lives, whatever it is, we have the answer. Peter also went on to say, uh, over in verse 13, he said, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, meaning this body, this tabernacle, as long as I'm living in this flesh, I think it's right as long as I'm in this flesh, to be real quiet and not write anything down so you don't know anything about God. Who has that version? Yeah. Sad to say, there are churches with that version. It's sad. But as long as I'm in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that surely I must put off this tent, you're going to die. Just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. It was important for Peter to understand what he knew about Jesus and that he portrayed it to the people he was writing to. You and me. He portrayed it. So if we know that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, we know that. And that the apostles have written it down and given it to us. We know the Bible has the answers. We've got to know how, as Christians, not just the pastor, not just the deacons, all of you sitting here, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, you've got to know how to portray this book to the world. To the world. You've got to show them how to find it, not just to read it, but to study it, to find the message through the whole book. And that message is not hidden. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? A few. Okay. Read it. It's an allegory written by a great pastor, uh, John Bunyan. And just so you know, this is why it's important for us to understand history. John Bunyan was put in jail for preaching. Had his church out in the woods, and he was put in jail for preaching. That a lot. He couldn't preach anything other than the state religion and from their books and texts. But he was preaching from the Word. He was put in jail. While he was in jail, he wrote this allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress, which is beautiful. And in the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, there's some characters, and, and they're, they're working in this, uh, in this town and in this world. They're working, and he finds out 
that one of the characters, and all the characters have names that are attributes. So the main character of the story is called Christian Pilgrim. Okay? But there's another character in the beginning who we don't meet till the middle. But the, the story starts with, have you heard? Faithful has left. The man faithful had left where they were. He was going to the celestial city. He had escaped and he went after him. And he had learned about the celestial city from a book. So they were trying to get rid of the books. But Christian, Christian Pilgrim found the book. And it wasn't long until he was on his own journey. So we have to, as Christians, we need to understand this book so that we can hand it along and teach people what it means. So we have the Bible. And we probably have two groups of people, in, even in this room, even in churches, we probably have two groups, two large groups. We have the people who reject it or reject parts of it, and we have people who accept it. Now, in that first group of people who reject it, I would say this. They've probably never tested it the way you would test any historical document to see if it's true. Two, they probably reject it because they don't like the message of it. It exposes things. We just heard that verse. Can anybody repeat the verse we just heard? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, that's one way to learn it. We have right now media. You can go right on there. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, or, in, or some verses say it is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit. That doesn't sound like fun, does it? Piercing. And of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Next verse, and this is the rub of, I think, of the world concerning the Bible. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. You can't hide. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And if you want to know the real reason why a lot of people reject the Bible, it's not because of facts or figures, or history. It's because of insubordination to a holy God. If the Bible's true, that means I've got to change my life. Because there's some things in there that I don't do. I don't love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, and all my soul, and all my strength, with all my mind. See, none of us do that. None of us, no matter how holy we think we are, and there's varying degrees of it, but none of us do that. And then the third group, within that group who reject it, they've simply been deceived by false intellect. Somebody who they thought was wise, who was a slick speaker, who told them, well, these parts might be true, but these parts aren't true, and maybe you ought to just throw the whole thing out, because a bunch of monks changed it a, bunch, a few hundred years ago anyway. Research that and find out how ridiculous that is. Because they keep finding new, new transcripts of the New Testament all the time that are the same as the transcripts they've always had. Okay, so there are a lot of things people say about the Bible that are not true. We're going to look at what it says outside of the Bible about the Bible and what it says in the Bible about the Bible in order to find out 
why we accept the Bible. Now, then there's a group, and I hope mostly in here, who accept it. And why do you accept the Bible? And some of you might be here and say, I accept it because I was just I was raised that way, my parents accepted it, and, and I accept it. it's what I believe, I've always believed. Well, God bless you. That's good. But there's a lot of things that parents teach their children, right? Are they all true? No. And I won't even mention them around holidays and dentistry and everything else. There are things that children believe with their whole heart. Okay? Raised in it. We've got to have a better answer. Or somebody might say, well, I've read the Bible. I've tried it, and it works for me. It just works for me. Any Buddhist can say that. Any Mormon can say that. I, I, read the, I read the Bible. I never really understood it. I got the Book of Mormon, and the lights came on, and I believe. And it works for me. But is it true? Interestingly, I'll, I'll put this, this note in here concerning the Book of Mormon, concerning uh, the writings of Buddha, concerning the writings of Muhammad. We have a collection of 66 books right here written by some 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years with a common message from Genesis all the way to Revelation of redemption. How does that happen in supernatural? 1,500 years, 40 authors, 66 books, all tying in together with the central character in time of Jesus Christ born in, that, born in Bethlehem. There's more to this book than just a fairy tale or one man's writings. How many people wrote the writings of Muhammad? One. How many people wrote the writings of Buddha? One. How many people wrote the Book of Mormon? One. Consider that. Just literarily consider that when you look at this Bible. Even if you're not looking at it spiritually, consider that. Okay? We have a good document. We tried it, it works, but that's not really the right answer. Here's another one. I believe this Bible because I've tested it. As a historical document, in, in as much capacity as my intellect would allow, I have tested it. I've looked at the verses within it. I've looked at commentaries about it. I've looked at the history of it. And I've tested it in my mind. Tested it. And I know and I believe it. Do you have your bulletins, Andy? Okay, put it back in your bulletin. Okay, keep this. This is a special bulletin. I don't want to find any of them in this room, okay? Because I'm telling you to keep it right now. I, when I clean up today, I don't want to find a bulletin later on. You get ready to fold this and keep it in your pocket. So that when somebody comes to you and says, well, you know the Bible, that's fine. But I kind of, I like to go by the, you know, the scientific method of things. And because of the scientific method, I can't believe what it says in the Bible. Just kind of go you don't use the scientific method to prove a book. Okay, you use the evidentiary method, same as you use in the courtroom. The scientific method has to have three requirements met that you can't meet with any historical document. You cannot do it. So until somebody tells you they don't believe the Bible because of science, just say you're in the wrong field. You're, you're really out in left field here because what is the scientific method? And ask the person, what is the scientific method you use to disprove the Bible? And see what their answer is. 
Because the scientific method is this. It has to be observable. Okay? It has to be observable. It has to be measurable. And it has to be repeatable. You can't do that with a historical document. You can't find people, the, the men that God used to write this down, you can't find anybody like them and say, hey, I want you to sit here and pray to God and see if he has you write the same thing. It doesn't work that way. You don't use a scientific method to prove or disprove the Bible. Just get that out of somebody's head if they tell you that. Do you see this first quote on, on the back of your bulletins? By Dr. Bodie Bachman. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses when? During the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Why is that important? It's written a lot of it in the first century while a lot of the people who saw the same things were alive. If somebody was going to refute it, they should have refuted it then. Okay. That reports supernatural events, not natural phenomena, but supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies listed within the collection of the documents. So in the same collection we have at the end of the book, there are predictions of it in the beginning of the book. Doug read one today that was written a thousand years before it happened. Pretty fascinating when you think about it. It is supernatural. In addition, the documents claim to be divine in origin rather than from human sources. Charles Spurgeon, that name doesn't ring a bell with you. He's one of the greatest preachers of all time, lived in the 1800s. He says, I have such respect for the biblical revelation that I never, in my own mind, permit the idea of discrepancies and mistakes. Ken Ham, the founder of Answers in Genesis, the guy who built the Ark in Kentucky for Haddon. The Bible is a commentary on man, not the other way around. Now, I can come up here and expose verses, and I can tell you things you need to know from the Bible, but the Bible itself is more of a commentary on me than I am of it. There is no expositor, there is no commentator who has the last word on the Bible. The Bible has the last word on itself. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for the correction, for instruction in righteousness. That's from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's from the Apostle Peter. We'll read that verse in a little while. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That is Jesus of Nazareth, as recorded in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 17. Keep this. Keep this with you. You need this, dear Christian, as a defense for this book, of the defense of the joy that is within you. Keep this. Okay. So why that first answer on the back of the page for these verses? That's why. It's reliable. It's reliable. We know from that second Peter passage that God wrote the Bible through people. If you went a few pages over from 2 Peter, if you're there, and I hope you are, 2 Peter, and we're going to read it. Don't worry, we're going to read this. I don't know how long it's going to take for this, but I really want you guys to have this. Our Bible is under attack. It's time for us to fight back. Okay? Be ready to fight back. Okay, a few pages over to 1 John. You know, one page over, however it is in your Bible. Turn over to 1 John, verses 1 through 5. 
John is another apostle. We know from the very beginning who walked with Jesus from his baptism on. An eyewitness. That word eyewitness is going to be important. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Not that you might be right about all things in historical documents, but that your joy will be full. I can tell you the people who start out in the Bible and never finish well, never go on to find out if these promises are true. They may have their salvation, they might not lose it, but they'll lose their joy. And oh, do we have an enemy who's trying to take our joy. So that first John passage tells us that the Bible is altogether good. Second Peter 1.20 tells us it's altogether true. This tells us it's altogether good. Luke 1, 4 through 1. That's what Luke is going to write an account of everything that happened from the beginning because he interviewed eyewitnesses. That word comes up again. He talks about that so that most excellent Theophilus would know why he believed what he believed. It's a true account. And Luke was very careful. And again, we see it's true. And then 2 Timothy 3, I want to go to that passage. 2 Timothy 3, we, we talked about verse 16 already a little bit earlier, and then uh, we just mentioned it. But go to 2 Timothy 3. This is Paul, the great apostle, writing to young Timothy, a pastor. And he wants him to know, he wants him to know why he believes and he wants them to be able to defend it. But he tells us some things in here that are pretty interesting. We start in verse 14. Those first few words. But you must continue. You must continue in the Word. You've got to continue in it. And in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing that from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This isn't in my notes. Um, I'm going to go somewhere else real quick out of my notes for you guys, for your advantage. Just came to me this morning. We have to say, especially to you ladies in here. A couple of things. When somebody tells you the Bible's not true and they, they start pointing out errors, you know, right off in the beginning you can see it's not true. It says, you know, that before there were any trees in the field, God did this. And it gets into the translation of the word field and everything else. And you can easily debunk all these things all the time. But one thing, answer I want you guys to say to somebody who's trying to tell you the Bible isn't true. Just say, do you, um, do you think this is really the first time, or you're, this is the first generation 
of people on this earth who's come up with these things about the Bible not being true. You know, 100 years from now, you'll be gone, and the Bible will still be here. People, you know, scientists and other people who try to debunk the Bible all the time, their names will be long forgotten. And people will be in churches or wherever they are, raising their hands and praising Jesus Christ. So that's a good question to ask them. Where do you, where do you think you're going with this? We have to be ready when somebody doubts the Word of God. If we have something, now I'm going to pick on Eve. I'm going to talk to you ladies. We're going to pick on Eve for a minute. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. This is how long people have been doubting the Word of God. Right from the beginning. Right from the very, very, very beginning. In the garden. Chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat at every tree here? Did God say that? Three times do people hear about the Bible. I know it's in the Bible. Do you really think God inspired people to write something like that? Do you believe that? Okay. Eve, as we know, ends up what? Failing. Right? And Adam's not much help, guys. Looks good to me. Sure. What did they lack? Equipping. From that time on, all humans have been born, but we've been given, and more and more and more, all the time, the opportunity to be equipped. Back to 2 Timothy, to be equipped. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That means it's good for you. For doctrine, that means teaching. For reproof, that means rethinking things and getting the right answer. For correction, making making corrections on how I believe and what I believe and what I'm doing wrong and what I'm doing right. The Bible is what we use for that. For instruction in righteousness to our children, to everybody, to instruct them how to be righteous. And we are righteous through the blood of Christ only. So we instruct ourselves to get closer to Christ and have Christ over us. Instruction in how to do that. Why? So that the man, that the woman of God may be complete, mature, however you want to, convert, however you want to translate that word, thoroughly equipped, for every good work. Let me tell you an example of somebody who was equipped, maybe not as equipped as we could be today, because this is a long time ago in history. We're going all over the Bible today. I hope you like this. This isn't even in the notes. I don't know how long. That won't take that long. Don't worry. But I think it's good. Let's go to 1 Samuel. I want to show you a different woman than Eve. Eve, let's not be too hard on her. She was not equipped. Okay? Let's look at Hannah. Let's go to 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, right after the book of Ruth. Can you imagine? This, I'm going to read chapter 2. This is this I, I just want you to think about it. Eve in the garden. If she had had the equipment that Hannah had, 
Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. And then she could have said, if Eve had, she could have looked right at Satan and she could have just said, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Poor Eve was not equipped. Maybe that's a good verse to highlight to write down yourself on the bulletin later. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 3. When somebody tells you, do you really believe all that stuff in the Bible and you know? Eating a man. What? Somebody dead three days in the grave and rising again? Really? Rather than getting out our apologetics and our theodicy, wondering what a theodicy is, the definition's over there, that's from our Wednesday night Bible study, and defending God like we're his lawyer, maybe we should just say, hey, hey, talk no more. So proudly. Church, we need to do this. What would have happened almost 200 years ago in the churches around New York and New England when a man who knew the scriptures well got up and said, this is good, but I, something has been real revealed to me that is more. And I've got a book for you given to me by an angel. Forget what it says in Galatians. Look at this book. My name is Joseph Smith, and I want you to have this. Somebody in the back. Maybe a little kid. Maybe a woman. Maybe a man. That stood up and said, Joseph Smith, talk no more. So very proud Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by Him, actions. Christians, be ready to stand. We're going to be talking about false teachers next week, and I'm not sure how that message is going to come about, but there are so many false teachers, and I'm not talking outside of the church. I'm not talking about New Age. I'm talking in God's church. There are false teachings, and I can tell you where they, how to, how to see them when they're not here, when they're not in the Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful. All right. You guys want today's message? So far, so good. Let's turn to Second Peter. Let's hear about the Apostle. The Apostle who at first had enough faith to walk on the water, but then looked around and saw a storm around him in the sun, but then was lifted by the Savior. The apostle who denied him three times, but then was restored. Let's listen to the apostle Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent Lord. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice, which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Let's just go through. A few key words. It's right through verse 16. I'm just going to expose this passage as well as I can, and then a few closing comments. Verse 16, key word. You can circle it if you want. We. Right out of the way, for we. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Eyewitnesses could be the next word to serve. Now, last night, middle of the night, I by myself went out in the middle of the field here, and a spaceship came over me, and there was light everywhere, and it took me up, and it gave me great revelation. Everybody else was sleeping. There's no traffic on the road. And I have a wonderful message to tell you about that. And what's the problem with that? No, I wouldn't. Now, why are you laughing at me? Okay, take me seriously here. First of all, it's me alone. There's no other, nobody with me. I can't corroborate it with anything except the aliens who I copy with, right? We don't believe things like that very readily. Okay, we don't believe great things like a voice coming out of the cloud and, and a man shining in white, which is exactly what Peter is describing here, this, the transfiguration on the mountain. He was there, he was present with James and John at the time, and then there were witnesses from heaven who came. It says Elijah and Moses were there. And he said, we, not I, but we were there. That's important. For anybody who's doubting all these things, you say, this guy wrote this. And he wrote this while John was still alive. John could have said, okay, everybody. I, I saw Peter's uh, letter. You know, Peter, he's getting kind of old. And uh, that's not what happened. But then we are here over in 1 John, what did John say? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon with our hands and have handled concerning the word of love. John saw the same thing. James saw the same thing. It's corroborated. And I'm not telling you some spiritual thing. I'm telling you these men all experienced the same thing and they recorded it. It's recorded in the book of Matthew. It's recorded in the book of Luke. It's recorded in the book of Mark. All three of them recorded it and Peter records it here. You've got four records of the transfiguration on the mount. It's important. And they were eyewitnesses. Verse 17. What are they witnesses of? For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. Listen, 
If we believe the Bible and a lot of things it says, but we miss the message that Jesus is the Son of God, and, and what this means that Jesus is God Himself. If we miss that, it doesn't matter how good we are at explaining why the Bible is true, because we don't have the truth. What does John say? He who has the Son has life. Okay? So Peter is saying, not only do we Here's you know, what we saw. Here's what we heard. Verse 18. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. I'll tell you where the voice came from, and I'm going to tell you where we were. We were on the holy mountain. And people reading this for the first time would understand. We actually debate it a little bit today. A lot of people believe it's Mount Tabor, and some people believe it's Mount Hermon. I'm on the Hermon side myself, but I can't say because I wasn't there. But I think it was on Mount Hermon, close to Caesarea Philippi. But nonetheless, the people who have been reading this, like John, the other person who was there, said, yeah, that's right, that's where we were, that's what we heard, that's what we saw. I was an eyewitness too. Verse 19. And so, we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed, to listen to and follow it, as a light. This is a light that points us to God. Now, I want to Go somewhere with this for just a second. Let's finish the verse. The light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning stars, star rises in your hearts. And in other words, you say, look, I know you're having a hard time believing this. Similar to when the man, Jesus, was going to help him with his son, and just if you believe, all things are possible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Peter was there when that happened. And here he is helping us with our unbelief. We have unbelief. We have doubts. What do you do? Right here. You're sitting here and you have any doubts about the Bible. Whether it's in Genesis or whether it's in Revelation. Wherever your doubts are, pray and look right here. You do well to heed. That means to listen to, study, figure out what I'm trying to say Heed as a light. This book is a light that shines in a dark place. We could say the dark place is the world, but sometimes the dark place is our own heart. We just don't understand. Our eyes have been darkened and we don't understand. Lord, shine your light of this book in my heart so that I will understand who you are. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises, where? In your hearts. The lights come on. The lights come on. things. When I got saved, I read the Bible. I was always drawn to the Bible, even when I was a Catholic. I didn't read the Bible much as Catholic, but I was always drawn to it, and I read the Bible. And that's how I got saved, was reading in the book of Matthew. And, and when I came to the realization that God knew exactly who I was, and then he saved me and showed me my sin and my wickedness, his grace poured over me. I was saved in a, in a very wonderful way. Thank God for that. It was his doing. But after I was saved, you know, when we're saved, we don't get everything at once. If we did, we just die. Imagine if you knew as much about God now as when you first got saved, you'd probably be dead. Ah, I know that much. And if he told you everything about it, you'd die. For no man has seen God and lived, all right? You just don't get it all at once because that would hurt. So we learn and we grow. It's called progressive sanctification. We learn more about God. And my experience was this. And some of you know this. I'll say it again. You get to know me better. 
I'm not going crazy, I don't repeat myself that much, I don't think. But I was raised Catholic, I went to Catholic school, and the Catholic school I went to was like low-budget Catholic school, okay? And they didn't have a science teacher. So for science, every afternoon, they would pull the shades, and they would turn on PBS, and for my science class, for four years, four years was watching NOVA with Carl Sagan, all right? He was my science teacher. Now, if you don't know who Carl Sagan is, some of you are laughing, all right? And the universe. And Earth is just a pale blue dot. And it was philosophy and astronomy and everything else. That's what I learned in Catholic school that had a Bible that said in the beginning, okay? So I learned it. So that's what was in my mind. It was embedded in me. But then I got the Holy Spirit and got saved. And I had people teaching me and growing me and saying, you know, this whole thing about creation being in about 6,000 years ago, and one man and one woman and everything. Well, come on, man, there's got to be apes and monkeys in there somewhere. I've got to believe this. It's what I learned. And we're stardust from outer space. And God was working on me. I had to struggle because I, I loved Jesus and I knew Christ. And, and I could see the book of Colossians, but he holds all things together. No, the gravity, it, it can't be right. You know, just this constant struggle in my mind. And finally, one day in prayer, and reading Genesis 1 through 11, I made up in my mind, so God, I believe you. I trust you. And I believe you. And the noise went away. And now when I look at the theories of the beginnings of the universe and everything else, and I look at the scriptures of it. Thank you, God, for saving me from that. And I'll give you a side note here, because I know there's probably people here who are there. I don't, I can't believe the biblical account. Here's a little apologetics for you. Nine years ago, eight, nine years ago, I went through the I from uh, Liberty University. And the instructor, it was all on tapes, you know, distance learning, distance learning. But it was recorded in 1976 by a man, very godly man named Harold Dean Wilmington. Harold Dean Wilmington put my family to sleep in the car a lot of times. <laughs> Intent on every word. And, and when he taught Genesis 1 through 11, he went through all the other theories of how the world was created, how people came about, and everything else. And I was laughing at it because his teachings were from what people were saying in 1976. Now, for some of the young people here, they're like, what was that? You were alive then? And I was. <laughs> but, but for some of you here, 1976 doesn't seem that long ago, does it? Not necessarily. Okay? It was the bicentennial of the United States. I remember 1976 quite well. And in 1976, they were still teaching a few different methods of, of uh, evolution. And they were talking about millions of years. Well, they don't talk about millions of years anymore. They talk about billions of years now, which most of us can't understand. And I could spend a whole hour on that explaining to you what a billion actually is, but both of you can't really comprehend it, nor can I. But now we have a few different scientific theory methods about the beginnings of the Earth. You have what's called the biological method. We look at biology, people who are living, and everything else, and the biological method is just not too far into the billions yet. 
They're into the billions, but not very far into the billions. And then we have the geological method, which is about 10 billion years ahead of the biological method. And then we have the astrological method, the astronomical method, which is about 10 billion years ahead of the geographic method, okay, the geology. Interestingly enough, the biological method is closer to what I believe than it is to the geological method. But they wouldn't want to admit that. It's true. And those numbers are going to change and change and change all the time. What it says in Genesis 1 through 11 is never going to change. And as we're talking about eyewitnesses, and we believe that it was written by somebody who was moved by the hand of God to write it down, Here's my question to any scientist or anybody here. Were there eyewitnesses at the beginning of the universe? Yes, there was. There's one. God. And he told somebody what to write down. That's what eyewitnesses count. Anyway, when I put that aside in my, in my own mind, like I said, things became clear. And I have one other thing I just want to share with you. We'll get through this real quick. Okay, it's not a private interpretation. Men, groups of men, committees could never come up with this book. There is not a man in the world who would ever come up with the evils that are written in this book and the goodness that is written in this book. I won't do that. I've got plenty of places I've left out. I said, God, that's too much information. I don't want to do that. I don't want to know about Lot with his daughters in a cave. Most of us read that, we don't want to hear that. But it's there. Why? Because it's true, and we need to know that it happened. I can't understand how the God of the universe could come down and become a baby in a manger by a virgin and then grow up to be this great teacher who performed miracles, the greatest of all I mentioned earlier, Friday dead, Sunday alive. I can't comprehend that in my mind, but I believe it is true. It's not a private interpretation. This book had never been written by mere men. The Holy Spirit is the author of this book and is the author and finisher of our faith. This morning, Doug graciously read. Does anybody remember the passage he read? So, we have in 1 Peter, it says the prophetic word confirmed. What is the prophetic word? In other words, there were things that were listed in the Old Testament that were confirmed in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you a verse. We use it at our communion service sometimes, and that is very powerful. I'll, I'll do the one. They're different in Matthew and Mark, and that's because Matthew was writing in Hebrew and uh, Mark was recording in Aramaic. So that's why some people look at that. That's one of those things where people say, this is, a, this is you know, a, a contradiction in the Bible. In Matthew, he said, Eloi, Eloi, and in Mark, he said, Eli, Eli. Same thing. Okay? slightly different variation of the Hebrew language. In Mark 15, I want you to think about this. Jesus is on the cross. There are seven statements from Jesus on the cross. This is going to be one. In Mark 15, starting in verse 33. Now, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for a while. He's almost dead. He's almost dead. It says, Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, six hour, at the sixth hour, that was about noon, 
in the, in the way they counted their hours. He'd been hanging on the cross for about three hours. A lot of people don't think about that. He's on the cross already for about three hours. Then there's darkness over the land for another three hours. So he's six hours on the cross. He'd already been badly beaten beforehand. He took our sins at a cost. Let's never forget that. Sometimes we don't talk about the crucifixion enough. The ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on here? How could he do all that work on the cross for so long and then say to God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? It brings about deep feelings in this, doesn't it? for this Bible that we have. That we can come in here this morning and Brother Doug can stand at this very podium and he can say, open your Bibles to Psalm 22. Now in the first century, they did not have the Bible divided like we have it divided now with numbers, chapter numbers, verse numbers, and everything else. So, if a rabbi wanted to read from the Psalms, the usual method was through the first, second, and third books, there were the scrolls, there were sections of the Psalms, and then they would read the first statement of that Psalm. So, Jesus on the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was saying to the people who were around, and even to us, open to Psalm 22. It's written over a thousand years before today. Open it, Israel. Open that Psalm. Open it, church, and look at it. Look at the Psalm. Look what's happening here. I'm fulfilling it right now. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And anybody who knew what he was talking about would have brought this Psalm right to their mind, and we should too. And look at what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. He goes down, he explains what he looks like, who he is. I am a worm and no man, a reproach of man, and despised by the people. That's verse 6, verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me, and they shoot out the lip, and they shake their heads, saying, He trusted in him, trusted in the Lord, let him rescue him. Didn't they say it? Let's see it. Elijah comes and takes it down. He's saying, when he says, my God, my God, he's telling the people around, look, look at what I'm doing. Look at this. He's a picture of Psalm 22. He says, be, in verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help me. There are no apostles now, even though the night before Peter took his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. There's nobody with a sword. There's nobody protecting him now. They're all gone. All gone. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of fashion have encircled me. They gave at me with their mouths like raging and burning lion. I am poured out like water. He's pierced in the side. Blood and water pour out of the hair of the sack as he dies. I'm poured out. 
All my joints are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked. The congregation of the wicked in Hebrew was another name for Gentiles. The Romans. They've been close to me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This statement, 900 years before crucifixion, was invented. I can tell all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. Jesus said, look. This is the prophetic word. You see me on this cross? I'm not dying. I'm taking your sins. I'm fulfilling the prophetic word. Verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. And you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the afflicted, the affliction of the afflicted. That affliction on the cross, God ordained it. He's not despised it. He knew it was the way for us to be saved. Without it, we're doomed. Isn't it beautiful? I'll cling to the old rugged cross. How can we sing about an instrument of torture when we realize there's no other way to be with God? We cling to that cross. Nor has he been hidden, has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard it. And what does Jesus get for all of this? He gets a church. He gets his bride. My praise shall be of you in the great sin. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. It was a picture. The prophetic word is confirmed. We don't do away with the Old Testament. We need the Old Testament to see the New Testament. We don't do away with the New Testament. We need it to understand the Old Testament. And we don't just... Here's something you're not going to hear a pastor say too often. Don't read your Bibles anymore. Don't read your Bibles anymore. Study them. Study them. Know them. Write down questions. What does this mean? Seek the answers. It's important. This message is getting pushed back. And it's one thing for it to get pushed back in the world. But let's not let it get pushed back in the churches. And if this building is where you need to come to learn, then come here. This area, a few towns around here, and even in this town, there are people who are claiming the name of Christ and can't name the town he was born in. They can't name the town he lived in. They can't tell you the books to find his genealogy back to King David, back to Abraham. 
Why claim Jesus when you know nothing about him? And how can you live the way he prescribed for you to live if you don't know him? Study him. This book, this book, this old book is a gift from God to us. That's the end. See you all Wednesday night. The Bible study. Right? And if you can't make it, hey, if you don't want to talk about the Bible, you got unbelief in your heart, you got doubts. I dare you to sit down with me. I'll listen to you. I will. I'll work through. I can't answer every question in the Bible. But I know how to look for them. I've learned how to study it. And we can do it together. Amen. God is good. Look at that last thing. Why do we believe it? Have you ever thought about that? That the prophetic word was confirmed when Jesus cried out of Did you learn something today? Yes. <laughs> Psalm 22. The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses that report supernatural events that took place to fulfill specific prophecies listed within the collection of the documents. In addition, the documents claim to be divine in origin rather than from human sources. Hallelujah. Amen. God, open our eyes. Let us never take this lightly. And Lord, help us not to be lazy about studying your word. And when we read it, may it just be to fulfill our joy, Lord. But we know that on this side of heaven, we are in a war. We know we have an enemy who is doubting and trying to get other people to doubt your word. So let us be like Hannah. Let us be bold to say no. No. I believe the book. I believe my Lord. And I will follow my kingdom. We pray this. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.